You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Welcome, everybody. Uh, We have uh, one or two people coming in, but we're going to get started because we have an incredibly exciting event here today. I want to welcome everybody to the Overseas Development Institute. My name is Alex Thier, and I am the executive director here. And uh, today we have an event um, on the prospects uh, waning or waxing. You be the judge. We'll do a snap poll at the end uh, of international support for democracy in the era of populism. And it, it seems like it's been a rough week for democracy. Uh, let alone the last couple of years. Um, For example, I see this week that uh, President Trump invited uh, the president of the Philippines, who I I think it's not controversial to say is a self-identified member of a death squad or leader of a death squad um, in his past and maybe present. Um, And I noted today that the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, um, made some remarks yesterday at the State Department Um, saying something that has long been a perhaps more hidden tradition in American foreign policy, um, that a strong position on human rights is not always in the U.S. national interest. Uh, But having the Secretary of State say it as one of the few things he has said, I think sends a a pretty dramatic message. Um, And this is on top of what I think many would suggest is a pretty long slump Um, perhaps over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, with democracy in retreat in many places around the world, closing space for civil society, becoming a topic in forums year after year, Um, a robust case being made for so-called developmental states, um, uh, perhaps buoyed by China's own rise, as well as its increasing influence around the world, Um, And so we're going to explore these themes today, and we have some magnificent people to do it with us. Uh, We're going to try to keep this conversational, so I'm going to go through uh, and ask our speakers, who I'll introduce in a second, a series of questions, and then we'll try to promote a little bit of crosstalk and then over to you uh, to join the conversation as well. Um, While I will ask you to silence your phones, please don't turn them off. Uh, We have a hashtag for the event, which is democracy. Uh, 2017, Um, and uh, we've been assured by all of the British political parties that if this trends, they will add it to their manifesto. (laughs) Uh, That's a joke for those in the Charity Commission who are watching. Um, uh, And if you're joining us online, uh, welcome. You can actually send us your questions and uh, supposedly do the wonders of technology. I will get them on my iPad, and I'll be able to ask them. So please do uh, send some in. Uh, so our speakers today um, are Tom Carruthers, who is the Senior Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Welcome, Tom. Uh, Michaela Rong, who is an author and journalist. Jonathan Murthy, who has just joined us uh, directly from Ukraine, where he runs a EU-UNDP project there. Um, and on the screen, uh, wave if you can see us and hear us, is Kabotsi Machangana, um, 
who is joining us uh, from Stockholm, and she is the Director of Global Programs at the International Institute for Democracy and Electoral Assistance. Um, and we will be joined at the end by our very own Alina Rokomenikal, uh, who is a senior uh, research fellow in politics and governance here, who's going to do a little bit of an effort at trying to sum up some of the brilliant things uh, that you will hear over the next 90 minutes. Um, Tom, I'm going to start with you. Um, you are and have long been a leading expert and authority on uh, democracy and governance and how governments go about trying to support democracy and governance. Um, I've long said and maybe will continue to say that I want to be Tom Carruthers when I grow up, um, but so far that hasn't happened. Um, so. Are things as bad as the headlines suggest? Uh, are we in an era um, that is being propelled towards away from democracy, freedom, uh, and this agenda uh, to increase the human rights and freedom of people around the world? Or are those things actually seriously, systemically in decline, not only in the West, um, but around the world? Um, and is this? new, or is this something that's been part of a longer-term trend? Alex has uh, implored us to keep our answers to one minute or less, so he's asked <laughs> quest questions that are proportionate to that task. Um, um, you know, Alex, since, since the start of this century, there has been a kind of secular stagnation, as an economist would say, which I'm not, of democracy. No more democracies today than there were at the start of the century, and there have been within that some bitter setbacks and disappointments like the failure of the Arab Spring to produce more pluralistic change than many people hoped. And at the same time, Western policymakers seeing that negative scenario have tended to turn away in some cases, but they've done so even more because of the prevalence of the security agenda in Western policymaking, a counterterrorism agenda, which unfortunately is often interpreted in ways that cut against democracy rights, pluralism, and other values through partnerships that are made with certain kinds of governments violations of rights at home and so forth. But in the last year or so, and I'm speaking here a bit from the perspective of Washington, our other panelists have perspectives from Europe and elsewhere, we've had sort of potentially two tipping points, negative tipping points that have come together rather unexpectedly that are very dangerous. The first one is the American people have elected a leader who evinces openly <laughs> anti-democratic impulses and ideas and has yet to carry them out, but we've never seen this before. We've never seen a president who stands in front of a campaign rally and turns to the journalists and says, these are terrible people, and people in the crowd boo at them, and he leads the booing of the free press. So we have a leader who openly embodies anti-democratic impulses, and of course the message of that to the world is catastrophic in terms of the example it sets, the emboldening of other leaders who then act on that and the assumption that that's, that's what's done in today's world. And then the second tipping point, is that same leader and some of the political ideas that helped put him into office seem to call for a questioning of the international liberal order as a centerpiece of both American and I would say Western foreign policy and whether that's even a value to the West and whether the West should take a much more transactional zero-sum approach to the international system both in terms of values in terms of you know basic rules-based stability and so to have a leader who on the one hand doesn't embody the values that are central to what we thought our country stood for and then to have their conception, the conception of him and his parts of his team, 
be that of somebody who doesn't stand for an international framework, represent two tipping points which, if they come together and are really carried through, is something new and different in a very negative way. The United States, for a couple of decades, has been a leader in the international movement to fund democracy, to support the strengthening of political parties, elections commissions, all of this type of work, civil society organizations. I'm curious at this point whether you see those organizations um, responding uh, to this change or are they waiting for the other shoe to drop, that the funding is going to dry up, that the policies are actually going to change? Because much of what we've heard so far is rhetoric and, while powerful, hasn't actually been enacted into policy funding changes and those sorts of things. Well, first, I, would, I mean, the United States has sometimes been a leader. Sometimes it's been against this agenda. Sometimes it's been a follower of others, European states generally, the European Union. But the member states play an equally significant role, especially in assistance terms. But still, the U.S. has been a major actor. Uh, they're waiting for two shoes to drop. <clears throat> the first shoe is their funding base. Uh, most of this community is supported by the U.S. government, and, you know, there is talk of a draconian cut in U.S. assistance, an unprecedented cut in U.S. foreign assistance. There's the hope that that won't happen in practice when Congress gets through with it, but it would, even if it's only a 10 or 20 percent cut, it probably end up being focused on somewhat on these areas because some of the core other areas, socioeconomic areas like health and education, might be protected. So that's one shoe, and that's, that's potentially devastating. And then the other shoe is, in a sense, the policy framework. Will the United States government care about the situation in the Democratic Republic of Congo? The last administration did. It engaged diplomatically. It asked assistance actors to play a role. If the government doesn't care about those issues, steps back, inevitably, the community of actors that would like to engage, not just because of funding, because of diplomatic support and general directive, uh, wouldn't be able to do so. So there's two shoes here. There's a, there's a money shoe and there's, a, in a sense, a diplomatic stance shoe, both of which haven't dropped yet, but there are worrisome signs. Thanks. I, I'm going to move on uh, to uh, Kaboitzi. Um, maybe picking up uh, from Tom's last comments, um, I'm curious from your vantage point, because you lead international ideas work in a lot of countries in Africa and Asia and Latin America, um, are you seeing uh, a big picture sort of backlash already uh, against uh, the types of organizations uh, that you work with and support? Uh, well, uh, thank you very much. I, I probably should start by uh, pointing out that uh, we are also very much concerned about the rhetoric that is coming out of uh, out of Washington and its implications for for democracy support uh, uh, going forward. Even as uh, organizations like International Idea, uh, we 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 depend very much uh, on not necessarily the, the the funding from the U.S. but the partnerships uh, that. Um, make democracy support uh, effective are those partnerships with uh, all the other organizations, uh, for example, that uh, that depend on, uh, on U.S. funding. So this rhetoric that is coming out of the uh, Washington also does concern us. Um, but at the moment, we, we, we have not uh, witnessed a, a backlash uh, in terms of um, 
organizations that we work with on the ground. What we see that uh, could potentially, and, and this is something that we are um, watching very closely, what could potentially happen is that uh, uh, given the, what, what we are seeing happening, especially in the West, um, is that the, the, the moral high ground of uh, countries, for example, like uh, who, who used to be sort of the leaders in this, in, in, in this field, like the U.S., uh, is going to fade. And, and therefore, uh, if we don't have a leader or a, a leading, leading countries uh, that um, advocate for, for human rights and democracy, we might end up with a situation where countries like you pointed out in your opening remarks, you know, um, end up justifying authoritarian tendencies. Uh, countries that always had the, the leaning towards that now probably feel that they, they do now have a, a reason to continue to, 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 to move that direction because um, right now there is no... A leader when it comes to issues of, of, of democracy and, and human rights. So for us as a democracy support organization, that is a big concern. Um, we are also sort of um, concerned it hasn't happened yet, but also uh, our, our perception is that uh, while there will still be support for Efforts, uh, efforts to support democracy uh, by uh, um, actors on the ground. We might find a situation where there's a backlash when it comes to certain um, uh, sources of funding. Uh, for example, there, there, there is potential that in the future you might find that given some of the actions that, uh, for example, President Trump has uh, undertaken since he got into, into government, for example, his anti-immigrant sentiment, you might find that in certain regions, it becomes even more difficult uh, to engage with, um, with actors in, 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 in those regions. So while this backlash is not yet evident, we, it's something that we think that might, might happen where people uh, uh, think that um, uh, no one should really be, um, uh, you know, democracy support should not really be uh, something that uh, should be done in their in their own country. So it's a it's a big concern for for all of us. And like I say, an idea, even though um, a lot of our support hasn't been coming from the the US. We are still concerned because as democracy support actors, we work together in coordination and we share this agenda. So it's a big concern for us as well. Let me ask you, I mean, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. There's a leadership vacuum, potentially, uh, a funding vacuum, potentially. I'm curious if you see anything innovative happening uh, where people who are out there uh, essentially defending their own freedom and rights or doing innovative things that we should know about? Yeah, indeed. You know, first, I think that even as we have leaders, um, uh, what now has come to be known as a, an authoritarian populists um, that I imagine, uh, I am of the view that we still see citizens that are also pushing back uh, on, on, on some of this. In, in the state itself, you are seeing um, uh, even uh, civil society standing up and, and, and 
against uh, what they are seeing as the onslaught on human rights and, and, and democracy. We are seeing um, uh, courts and judges standing up against it. So uh, not just in the U.S., but you are, you are seeing the rise of the citizen. It's not always about uh, just, you know, nationalism, but it is also about uh, people demanding uh, deeper democracy, democracy that delivers, people demanding... Uh, better representation. And, and I am of the view that uh, one of the reasons why um, we are seeing the backlash that we are seeing, that has enabled uh, uh, populist authoritarians to, to, to emerge. It's essentially because uh, uh, pe perhaps um, the, those who supported democracy you know, accepted a very low bar. When, 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 a, when a country became an electoral democracy, really minimum forms of democracy, it was accepted as a democracy. So I think that now the citizens are pushing, the people are pushing for more deeper democracy. We don't see them uh, demanding autocratic forms of government. So there are these innovations that are out there where people are pushing. And just last week, we had a seminar here and, and we were with politicians, where politicians, political parties actually, where political parties were saying, we, we do realize that uh, what, what we need to do is to build a relationship between ourselves as institutions uh, uh, together with the people. So those are some of the innovations that we are seeing when political parties are, uh, uh, traditional political parties are beginning to reinvent themselves, some of them um, coming up with strategies to reinvent and become uh, political parties for the for the future. Um, so these are examples of um, innovations that are are now beginning to happen, especially to do with political parties who are beginning to recognize that uh, they cannot continue to work exactly the same way. They need to re-engage uh, with the citizen. Yeah. Thanks. Very very helpful. Jonathan, let me come to you. You um, uh, are sitting, uh, not at this very moment, but usually in uh, Ukraine, which um, has kind of fallen into the epicenter of a bunch of fascinating global geopolitical cross-currents of revanchism and citizen action and corruption and post-truthism. Give us a sense of what this debate looks like from the ground right now in, in, in Kiev. Well, it's a, it's a very complicated situation. Of course, Ukraine is a very complicated country. Um, and I wanted to maybe give an example of the complexity of, of the debate, the situation. Um, I was talking yesterday with one of Ukraine's leading feminists, somebody who's been active in gender uh, equality movement for many years and um, uh, we were talking about the Istanbul Convention on gender-based violence that uh, Ukraine was not able to ratify because of a sort of populist backlash at the end of last year expressed in Parliament um, and she was talking about a conversation she had with a very high political leader back in 2011 um, on, and she was talking to him about the importance of gender-sensitive policy, the importance of Ukraine moving forward in this area. Ukraine has quite a, a, a bad record in terms of uh, um, very low representation of women in parliament and very little focus on, on gender-sensitive policy making. Anyway, she was talking to this top leader and uh, 
And he obviously wasn't very aware of the issue. Uh, but when she said, you know, the European Union expects Ukraine to make movement in this area, and it's becoming an international norm. And he kind of snapped his fingers and said, well, if it's an international norm, if the European Union says we must do this, then it's important. And he told his advisors, and sure enough, down into uh, the decentralized areas of government, in the oblast, so on and so forth, a whole series of gender policies were enacted. Now, roll forward to 2016 and the Istanbul Convention, a very important convention on, on gender-based violence, something that you would think would be relatively uncontroversial in a country like Ukraine, which has uh, gender equality um, written into the Constitution. There is legislation uh, against gender-based violence. Um, there are weak, policy, weak policies and weak services in the area. But when uh, the question of ratifying the convention came up in Parliament, it was the opportunity for a huge backlash of populist rhetoric, saying that this was uh, a way to destroy the family, this was, a way, this was against the religious values of the country, um, that it was, an, it was an attempt to bring in various types of perversion into the purity of the Ukrainian soul and so on and so forth. And this despite the fact that the, the, the European Union's um, gender ambassador had warned or strongly suggested that in order for Ukraine to be compliant with the EU-Ukraine Association Agreement, that was one of the main, if not the main, focus for the 2014 revolution, democratic revolution, that really Ukraine needed to, needed to ratify this convention in order to be compliant, in order to demonstrate its European values. Still, that didn't matter. And I think that that demonstrates, in a way, this big shift that has occurred from a sense that of, of aspiring democracies, a sense that there is an obligation, if we wish to be part of the community of democracies, to enact, to fulfill these international norms, to now, do we really have to? Now, it's complicated, of course, because as Kaboitsi said, there's also a popular, a populist, a question of, well, in 2011, when the political leadership said, okay, we'll sign on the dotted line and we'll do this and do this and do this, how real was it? How authentic? How citizen-driven was it? Or was it just something that came down from the top as a diktat that you had to tick off? And now you have a situation where you have these populist voices speaking out, but speaking out in a way that I think many of us find very disturbing. So it's a complicated situation. So do you think, um, as, as, as I asked Tom about the sort of the, the change in politics in the United States and what effects that that has on their policy on promoting democracy and human rights abroad, are you seeing changes 
in Europe. Let's not talk about the UK. We'll come to that in a minute, but but maybe other parts of the European Union. Is there a shift that's going on post-Brexit, uh, depending on what happens on Sunday in France? Is Do you see shifts underway where this issue is taken on less or even perhaps greater importance as a result of of the political movements in the last year? Well, I think it goes back, uh, particularly in Central and Eastern Europe, um, the rise of populism, uh, the rise, the, the leadership of one country that's a neighboring country to Ukraine uh, by someone who describes himself as a follower of illiberal democracy. Um, I think it's something that dates back a number of years, this shift towards populism. And um, I mean, I'm, I'm like Tom. I, I'm. In the long term, I'm optimistic, but I think there's definitely a trend over a number of years towards populism and a, a trend of skepticism towards certainly the model of democracy that was perceived to be the norm through to the last few years. Thanks. Michaela. Coming to you, um, you um, have written a fascinating series of books um, about the DRC, Eritrea, and Kenya. Um, with a particular emphasis on corruption and conflict um, and the not always entirely salutary role that uh, Western politics and politicians and money have played uh, in those environments that may be un understating. Um, so I'm curious whether you see the trends that we have been talking about as actually engendering a worsening in Africa or do you think that in some ways it doesn't matter, it's not actually going to be relevant to the behaviors? Well, I think it's going to be relevant, but I think, um, I think the, the Trump election and that, those trends that you both have been describing and uh, the three of you have been describing, uh, um, that, that it, it, this, is, this has already been happening uh, and having an impact in Africa, and that the key moment was when the Twin Towers came down. Um, and that was a moment where that sort of interim period where we had Cold War politics in which, uh, you know, uh, each side was, was supporting their own dictators um, and turned a blind eye, you know, the superpowers were turning a blind eye to egregious human rights abuses. Um, and then there was an in-between in period and then we have the, the Twin Towers coming down and the West's prime concern uh, becomes security um, and Islamic fundamentalism in Africa, which is, is very real uh, and, you know, has, there's been all sorts of events uh, and infringements uh, in the Horn of Africa and also in West Africa. Um, so it's not an invented fear, but I think, you know, that's, that's been having an impact on, on the way the, 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 the West sees democracy in Africa for a very long time. Um, uh, and people have been speaking for the last three, four, five years, I suppose, about a democratic recession in Africa, where um, I think, I mean, now multi-party elections are now the norm, but there's a sense to which regimes that don't want to leave have got very, very canny at knowing how to manipulate them, use them, stay in power. And a lot of regimes that were committed to two term, uh, two terms in office are staying on and on and on. They find ways to do this. We've seen this in DRC, um, where Kabila is simply not having an election. We've seen this in Uganda. I think it's the fifth term in office for Yoweri Museveni. Um, Burundi, it doesn't seem to matter how violent Burundi gets. You know, the president doesn't want to t stand down. 
Zambia, we're seeing a similar issue with a president who, who doesn't, you know, doesn't want to observe the two-term um, uh, issue uh, stipulation. Uh, Rwanda, of course, um, where we, we, thanks to the referendum, Kagame is going to run and run and run and run. Um, uh, yes, there have been some encouraging developments, as in um, Burkina Faso, where Compaore, Blaise Compaore, tried the same thing and was basically booted out by his own population. Um, and then there was a, you know, there was a coup, and then now we have civilian government again. So that it showed that there were there were limits, and uh, we also had very encouraging uh, development in Gambia, uh, where we saw a, a, a maverick president who was saying. He wasn't going to observe what was clearly the result of the election um, and, um, and the region banding against him and the local population saying, I'm sorry, but you've got to go. Um, so those were, and, you know, we've also had some, some very encouraging, uh, very encouraging elections in Nigeria and, uh, and Ghana. So it's a very diverse picture, um, but I think overall, you know, there is a sense that... Um, the democratic struggle, uh, the, de the fight for democracy, has got very crunchy, and the danger of that is it gets more more violent because they're real, they're real issues now at stake. You know, ruling parties know how to rig. Um, they there are these royal, almost these royal dynasties that, that now are several several generations who want to hang around, uh, you know, who want to hang on to their uh, hand over to their sons. Um, uh, and, yeah, they, they, they don't want to go. And I think I, feeding into this is, is, has been also this, this whole, you mentioned in your introduction, the issue of the developmental state and the West's conception that um, the MDGs were sort of a prime concern when it came to giving aid uh, and that you couldn't be too, um, too ambitious, let's put it, and that the people who deliver aid most effectively are often uh, authoritarian to put it kindly, leaders. And, and that, that mindset, which I think I've seen getting stronger and stronger and stronger in the aid community, and I find very, very disturbing. Um, uh, it coalesced very, very nicely, of course, with the concerns about Islamic fundamentalism. We want strong states. We want states that can contribute to our peacekeeping forces, our UN interventions. We want states that can crack down on al-Shabaab, uh, on al-Qaeda in the Maghreb. Um, uh, so, I mean, I think these two concerns, I think the developmental community um, has, has played a, a fairly dark role often in this, this whole process. Um, uh, and yet, yes, democracy continues to, to fizz away and, uh, and will do so because every time you go to cover an African election, I've covered a lot of them, um, you know, what's really impressive is the turnout. And uh, I think uh, the Africans I meet... Um, they would probably agree with Winston Churchill, not in most of the things he said, but in when he said, you know, it's the worst of all possible systems, but it's, it's, it's uh, apart from the others. Um, I think most Africans feel that way. They feel they have the right to have a democratic election and they're going to insist on it. Uh, where I do think we, we need to look, and maybe we can talk about this later, is it doesn't have to all be the same form of democracy. And we've had this one-party-fits-all approach and I think that's been very unhelpful mm. and very damaging. You know, the, the, the first-past-the-post system, the system that, that, you know, even actually in many countries in the West don't have these systems. Why, why has that been the only system that has been sort of 
encouraged and urged on Africa because, um, you know, it's 54 countries and people have different traditions and different, different needs and uh, different, you know, the, the, the different makeups. Yeah. I want to talk about UK policy in a second, but I, I, you've, you've touched on such an electric debate within the development community. I just want to ask you a quick follow-up question. You know, there is a lot of, of funding, uh, assistance, health, education, all of these things that go to many of the countries that you're referring to. Uh, Rwanda and Ethiopia often top the list of this right. sort of debate. Um, and the question is often asked, which is a very real question, about whether that assistance should go forward even if uh, there are uh, authoritarian trends or support for democracy and governance is not possible because of the approaches of those governments. You, your response indicated that you think that that can be damaging to, to provide that support. I just want to draw you out on that a little bit. Well, yeah, because the, the message, message that gives out to the local population is, um, is um, that democracy doesn't matter to the West. Um, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, I, I think... I, I would make make two two points about this, uh, which is I, I think it's it's deeply damaging to the demo, democratic message Western countries want to, uh, uh, want to give out. But I, I think there's another point, which is maybe a separate one, which is that at the end of the day, I always uh, like to make the point that it's taxpayers' money in the West that's being spent, and so I think there's also a moral argument to be to be made uh, which is that you have to turn around and make your um, uh, explain to the British taxpayers if you're DFID, American taxpayers if you're USAID why it is that you are supporting governments whose opposition leaders are in jail and never get out who are killing journalists on a regular basis who are closing down NGOs um, who, who, who jail journalists, who are producing floods of uh, political uh, asylum seekers, many, you know, many of whom are quite uh, clearly in genuine fear of their lives, mm. and, and yet these are prime recipients of, of Western aid. I mean, I, I, uh, you owe that explanation to the people who provide you with the aid budget, and I think that tends to get forgotten sometimes. So, Tom, let me come to you. The mention of taxpayers undoubtedly quickened the... Uh, heartbeat of hearts and minds out on the campaign trails around uh, the United Kingdom. Um, I'm curious what you think of uh, British support for democracy in the post-Brexit era. Um, is it a priority? Have you seen evidence one way or another? Are you, I don't know how closely you're watching uh, the campaigns, but uh, Certainly aid overall is a big debate here at the moment and support for the level of aid. But I'm curious within that, uh, as we talked about with the U.S., where you see support for these themes going in the U.K.? Well, I think since last summer the government has shown some interest both in the foreign office and also at, uh, within UK, the U.K. aid structures of the Department for International Development in issues of civil society space and in uh, the fact of closing space. Both Boris Johnson and the ministers at DFID have talked about this issue and expressed some interest in doing more about it. Um, the UK has traditionally been different than the United States. It talks differently about the democracy issue. It tends not to lead with it as a rhetorical framework but it does tend to try to find ways to support it. This has been manifest in the difference between USAID's approach and DFID's approach. USAID 
you know, has a center for democratic uh, governance and rights and puts one of the four core pillars when you stand in the lobby of USAID as promoting democracy. That's not the case in the lobby of DFID. Yet it's woven into DFID <coughs> programs when you look at the commitment to transparency, to inclusion, to accountability, to participation. You see values throughout many DFID programs that embody the same things. The Foreign Office and the Parliament also support the Westminster Foundation for Democracy that embodies a, a British commitment to democracy. So it's there, but it, you know, it's a bit of a cultural contrast in some ways of is it effective to lead with a, a sort of noisy rhetorical framework and risk the constant comeback of hypocrisy and inconsistency which comes if you arrive in so many countries as an American, whether it's Egypt or Ethiopia or Pakistan or others and say, of course, promoting democracy is one of those four core pillars. They're, they're immediately ready for a good argument. Whereas if you weave it in a bit more and, and lead a bit less with your rhetorical chin, you know, arguably that's a more effective way. So, so I think there has been a, a British commitment. But there's also some deep thinking in the development community about what Michaela was getting at is that are we confident about the simple association of certain liberal democratic forms with developmental progress. Not that we should embrace the authoritarian developmental state, and I think that would be a mistake. But can we be more pluralistic in our thinking at least about how countries, you know, go through a process of change that engenders greater pluralism and commitment to these values that may not be a simple sequence or a quick embrace and so forth. So there's some complex thinking, but that's a search for the best way to reach the right endpoint. It's not a giving up of that endpoint. Kavosi, uh, let me come back to something you said uh, earlier in following up on this. I mean, as Tom pointed out, you know, some so one person's uh, leading with your values uh, is another person's hectoring, uh, and uh, you know, maybe uh, the U.S. is particularly good at this, but. Um, I think a lot of people would say that one of the reasons that this support for this agenda hasn't always been successful is because uh, it needs to be born fundamentally of the interests of the actors involved, not because somebody came from a rich country and said you should be doing this if you want to be uh, a better part of the international community. And so you look at the Kabilas, and these cases go back Democrat, Republican through generations, right? It's not as though. Um, they have necessarily been uh, responsive. And in fact, I, I think as Jonathan mentioned, sometimes you can actually cause a negative reaction by appearing uh, to, to lecture. Uh, so I, I'm curious if, the, the, if the, 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 the prominent loud voices go down, um, are there other ways in which you see that uh, those in the international community that still support this agenda should be rethinking the way that they encourage the decision makers on the ground to 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 embrace uh, democracy and human rights. Thank you very much. Um, yes, indeed. But maybe before I respond to your question, let me go back to the points that were made by two points that were. I just want to pick on the conversation that Michaela. Uh, made. Uh, first of all, pointing out uh, the high vote that turned out, for example, in, 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 in Africa. Uh, and for me, that is where my um, optimism about the future of democracy lies. That the, the optimism about the future of democracy it, it lies still in the people that really still believe that they need it. I, I would be more pessimistic if 
uh, people around the world no longer support democracy. But we see that there are leaders who emerge who are anti-democratic in their rhetoric. But at the same time, you know, the point that I made earlier about, you know, seeing that people still believe in it. So for me, that is the where my, my optimism comes from. But I also think that um, maybe going forward, the approach to democracy support, first of all, I think we need to reconsider this conception of democracy where we think that democracy is just something that happens uh, uh, within the borders of a, particular, of a country. We, we are so interconnected that nowadays, you know, providing democracy support without taking into consideration the impact of, um, you know, a country being a member of a, the international community. In a way, it defeats, it, it, it does have a negative impact in the sense that uh, citizens may want a, a particular, things to move a particular way, but at the same time, countries may also be constrained to move that way because uh, they are part of certain agreements, even part of certain um, um, uh, arrangements where they cannot, at the end of the day, account to their to their um, to their um, uh, uh, people. So I, I really think that in in this reflection, one of the things that we really need to do is to reflect on as this disconnect between uh, people and institutions and and their political leaders. What has been the role of the international community in all of this? If, for example, a country, because it is funded, even though it, it abuses the human rights, um, at the end of the day, it is not accountable to its people because it still continues to have that money. Um, what, what role has the international community also played in all of this? And I think going forward, when we look at uh, uh, democracy support, this element of the role of uh, international community needs to also be factored in. Um, often the challenge is that, of course, this, the money for this work comes from ODA and often uh, countries that uh, provide it say, this money is not for, for us, for you to, uh, to work with us, but rather for you to go and work elsewhere. But I really think that we have come to a point now where we really need to, to reflect on this to say, you know, um, this country's democracies don't happen in a vacuum. And it doesn't matter if you are going to be supporting political party development or parliament, parliament development or civil society, when at the end of the day, you know, accountability tends to be to those who finance rather than to, 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 to the people. So the, the role of uh, uh, geopolitics and international community in, in all of this, I think, has, um, has an impact. But coming back to your question, I also think that um, um, going forward, democracy support will require a conversation, not you know the, the, the donor-recipient kind of relationship. I think we, we, we are going to move away from that. We, we will need to move away from that if we want to be effective in the work that we do. I think that there are, you know, people know what they need um, in their countries. And, and if they can be part of defining, you know, the agenda for assistance, I think, or, or support. I think that will go a long way uh, than, you know, the, the, 
we need to probably move to something like democracy cooperation because also in the global south for example there are some innovative you know examples of how you know um uh, innovative examples of, of democracy for example um you know some countries in in in, in the global south they have been able to manage diversity much more than you know um, uh, in Europe, for example. So, what is it that some of these countries that have been providing uh, democracy support can also learn from the global south? So, I really think that uh, we, we need to move away uh, from the donor-recipient relationship, but more, you know, a cooperation model where you know. Not only just yesterday, I was at a conference organized here by CIPRI, where one civil society actors, you know, basically put it so bluntly and said, "Why is it that every time we are provided support, somebody comes with an already cut out program of capacity building? Why is it that we cannot be at a table to decide and be part of the conversation of what is it that we need?" where we think that support should be should be given so i really think that that sort of thing going forward is not going to is not going to work especially that uh, like i said at the beginning uh, we are seeing a situation where those countries that the world used to look up to in terms of uh, being the best when it comes to democracy are now you know relinquishing sort of that uh, moral high ground so yeah so nice. democracy cooperation might have to be the way to go. Thanks. Yeah, uh, Jonathan, I was uh, struck by, you know, the alleged interference of Russia and U.S. and French elections. And it's kind of a through the looking glass experience. You know, we had the color revolutions. And of course, a lot of these countries, authoritarian countries, looked at that with fear and suggesting that it was interference, and then they started to act internally to prevent those sorts of things. But then maybe the light bulb went off and said, well, wait a minute, we can, we can play this game too. We can reach across borders to try to affect outcomes uh, that are more favorable to, to our interests. Um, are, you, are you seeing that more in, in Ukraine? Are you feel as though people feel as though there's a lot of a lot of push the other way in terms of anti-democratic forces? Um, I would say, uh, without wanting to get too much into making geopolitical statements as a, as a UN uh, diplomat, um, I, I would say that, that in Ukraine, um, the situation has moved beyond interfering in elections and, and Ukraine's territorial integrity has been uh, has been violated, and part of the country has been illegally annexed by uh, by Russia, and another part of the country is uh, is in the hands of uh, of rebels who are clearly um, who are clearly supported by Russia. So, um, I think, in a way, the game has gone sort of beyond beyond uh, the interfering in in elections situation. Um, I did want to pick up on, on a point and, and actually <coughs> really underline uh, my agreement with Kaboitz's point um, about the fact that to me the crisis of Western democracy provides some real opportunities to change the way we look at democracy support. 
Um, I think democracy support has been a sort of one-sided process, a teacher-student process, you know, a pedagogic rather than dialogic approach, um, where democracy is perceived as a, a technocratic approach rather than looking sufficiently, in my view, at what is democracy for. The uh, Norwegian sociologist Stein Ringen talks about this. What, 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 what is democracy in, intended to achieve? And I think we need to focus a lot more on that, which is very similar to the point that, that Kaboitsi said. And from my perspective, the opportunity of the current crisis is the opportunity to actually dialogue that now we from the West are not so certain about the superior or superiority of our model, perhaps we'll be prepared to listen to what happens in the global south. Before I came to Ukraine, I, I was in Tunisia uh, for three years after the Tunisian revolution in 2011, and that country achieved a remarkable transition entirely on the basis of local, national, capacity to dialogue, a country that had never been democratic, that was divided um, really down the middle, 50-50 between very different views of how the society should be, managed to achieve a democratic constitution that was adopted by the overwhelming majority of uh, the different political forces. But what's tragic in a way, although uh, Tunisian, the T Tunisian actors won the Nobel Peace Prize. I have never heard uh, anybody from the West saying, what could we, a Western country, learn from what that country was able to do? And it's very similar to what Kaboitsi said. And so in a way, I think this fact that suddenly we have been shaken by this rise of populism, this rise of anti-democratic thinking, anti-democratic leadership in some cases in the West, I think it also perhaps will, will give the chance to, re, uh, to start looking at democracy as, democracy as something that we need to build together, and that involves a dialogue south-north. Tom, you had a quick interjection on Tunisia? Or? No, on, on the general point about the change, which I like the general idea that Kavosti was saying about moving away from a conventional donor-recipient relation to a more cooperative sort of mutual learning form, and then the idea of taking lessons from abroad. But at least on the U.S. side, there's, there's two, two complexities to it, or two things that make it very difficult. The first is, you're right, there is a moment now, you know, many parts of U.S. society are shaken by what's happened politically in the United States and feel that, as you say, maybe the door has opened a bit in their minds to we could learn from abroad. But the very thing that has shaken the society is quite xenophobic at the same time. And so many people in power, you know, are actually uh, very much against the idea of learning from abroad or just by their sort of political instincts. And so the very moment that opens some people's doors in their minds brings out other people to power whose doors are very closed. So we have to sort of keep that in mind. I mean, there are already, there's a group of very prominent comparative political scientists who formed something in the United States in the last couple of months called Bright Lines Watch. Bright Lines being what are the lines in a society when it crosses from incipient authoritarianism into genuine authoritarianism? What are those lines? What do we see the experience from other countries? And how should we establish the sort of a clear set of warning signals within American society for what those are? 
but that's a group of, you know, comparative political scientists at universities that those currently holding power would not see as, you know, necessarily a friendly force. And then second, the second complexity is, is that our institutional structures are, are deeply rooted. And so, you know, we have, for example, very serious problems with U.S. elections. You know, after many successive elections in the United States, we still do not have agreement on basic rules of the road about, you know, voter ID and um, a whole series of processes related to election. We have something in, based in Washington, the International Foundation for Election Systems, a very good organization, has experience in over 100 countries working on administrative reform of elections. You couldn't find a better source of expertise. Well, unfortunately, they're sort of legally prohibited from working in the United States because they're an assistance organization. So we have an institutional set of structures that the very organizations who you would think are the repositories of the comparative experience because of funding structures and legislative authority for these organizations. They're not allowed to turn the telescope around and provide some assistance at. So we, we have both some mentality issues in, in overcoming this, this, this hurdle to this moment as well as some institutional issues. Mm -hmm. Well, my 10-year-old my feels more strongly about the Electoral College these days than he does about uh, his favorite football team. So maybe that's a good sign for the next generation. Uh, Mikhail, I want to ask you a very specific question because a couple of people, uh, including yourself, have invoked uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Um, and you have written a book about it, uh, spent a lot of time on it. Uh, it's probably one of the most pernicious problems out there as far as imagining a path um, that would lead to successful democratic institutions, citizen representation, um, even under better circumstances uh, globally that has been true. Um, how would you describe now what is, a, what is a potential path for a place like the DRC to actually emerge from its challenges and, and become more democratic, given some of the, the suggestions that uh, our co-panelists have thrown out? Well, that's a stinker of a question, frankly. <laughs> um, especially, I have to say, I haven't been to Congo for a very long time now, and I feel very embarrassed by that fact, but that is, that is the truth. But I, I met um, not long ago a friend from the State Department who'd been uh, to Congo just recently, spent a lot of time there, and he had also been there in the past. And he said, yeah, he said, it's, it's, it's very similar to the Mobutu era, only without the charm. <laughs> because like Olampe, Mobutu was a charmer and a hugely charismatic man and most presidents, authoritarian presidents are, that's how they get to be authoritarian presidents. Um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's very difficult. Um, it seems that the, the young Kabila is determined not to leave power. I think he is one of, you know, he sees himself as sort of part of this monarchical um, family dynasty, and he's not the only one. I mean, it's quite clear in that part of Africa that, that um, hardline leaders or authoritarian leaders are, are looking at each other, seeing what other people get away with, and then doing the same thing. So one bad example has an influence. I think the Burundi example and, and the, the Uganda example has definitely been seen as a source of inspiration by other leaders who think, well, if they got away with it and those are the techniques they used, why, why shouldn't I do the same? Um, I think, I mean, I, I tend to feel that one of the, the ways ahead for um, many African states, it has got to be devolution and federalism. And um, uh, we see a very interesting experiment taking place in Kenya where there's a new constitution, a devolved constitution. And uh, one of the issues in Kenya um, is, is, is that, um, you know, that the central executive presidency is trying to claw back powers to sort of 
state house. Um, but um, but this, this new constitution is there. It's created a whole uh, structure of uh, regional assemblies and county elections and governors who now have a vested interest. There's certainly also been a devolution of corruption, which is what everyone says. But I'm a great believer that devolved corruption is better than uh, centralized corruption because you can see it and you can then object to it and you can fight it. Um, and I think federalism has to be the way ahead in the long term for DRC, but when they had the opportunity to vote in a, a federal constitution, it was watered down. And what I understand if with the DRC, and you would need somebody who goes there more regularly than I do, is that the money that is supposed to, the money is collected in these mineral-rich um, uh, provinces, sent back to Kinshasa, and it doesn't then get redistributed. And this is a big problem with the federal system, in that if you've got a central state that isn't going to um, honor its side of the deal, the federal system's simply not going to work. And then what you get is local, uh, local rent-seeking by local officials who aren't getting the money from Kinshasa anyway, and they say, okay, well, you know, then we'll just sort of uh, uh, impose all sorts of informal taxes because, well, we, we need that stuff. So, you know, if you're going to have a federal system, and I do think the, the way ahead for enormous countries of, uh, of, of Congo's nature, where the provinces are so detached from one another, the road systems, the telecommunications are so extenuated, um, it, it, it has to work. And, um, and, uh, and, you know, people have to support it and want it. And uh, so uh, I, I, that, that I, I think we're nowhere near that mm. in Congo at the mm. moment. Yeah. Great. Well, I want to go out to the audience for questions. Uh, what I would ask is uh, we have a wandering microphone. Yes, we do. Uh, uh, please identify yourself, your organization, um, and keep it fairly brief. Uh, we'll collect a couple. Um, I also have some good online questions, so we'll get to those uh, in a minute. Uh, let me start over here. Uh, and if you wouldn't mind waiting for the microphone. And welcome, Steve. Thanks very much. My name's Steve Golub. I'm an independent consultant and researcher who's worked with the Carnegie Endowment, uh, DFID, ODI, and many other organizations. It seems when we're talking about support for democracy, we're talking about it on two levels or in two overlapping ways. One is the rhetorical and political support, which is a relatively straightforward matter. That is, you wouldn't get, obviously, President Obama or President Bush uh, inviting someone like President Duterte of the Philippines for any kind of a meeting or endorsing him in any sorts of way. That's a real downturn we're seeing. The more complex picture regards actual financial aid through various types of projects and programs for democracy. I'd argue that perhaps there's less there than meets the eye. As a consultant who often works on a policy level, but sometimes dips into country-specific projects, to my mind, a lot of that support has actually been rhetorical. We talk about greater attention to political economy analysis around the world. I've been on consultancies, including one recently, where my fellow consultants were just consumed with log frames, results frameworks, for those of you who have had the pleasure of working with these monstrosities of devices, which I would argue have been completely counterproductive to development effectiveness, to the point where they preferred to work through these 
tools, as opposed to doing political economy analysis, as opposed to discussing the substance of what's going on with a given project and program. I could tell other stories, and I know it seems like perhaps I'm getting into the weeds here, but in considering the future, I think we have to consider the fact of how democracy support has worked on the ground. Often there's really been less than meets the eye, to the extent that there's the possibility of turning uh, lemons into lemonade here, perhaps there's an opportunity to rethink the whole way in which aid mechanisms work, not just in terms of policies and new ideas, you're going to be discussing some of them here at ODI, I believe, in a few weeks, but also in terms of how it really operates on the ground. And to my mind, in my experience, the trend has really been negative in terms of these log frames, in terms of the dominance of consulting firms and the like. To the extent we can turn lemons into lemonades, I think there's a lot of attention that should be paid to that whole issue going forward. Thanks. Uh, let me let me uh, let me twin that with an even more uh, radical uh, question from online and let you guys respond. This is from uh, I don't Zizex Mongoose from the university. I don't want to laugh because that may be uh, his or her name, but uh, it may. Uh, University of Ljubljana in, in Slovenia wants to ask, it's quickly becoming apparent that our current brand of global capitalism has outgrown democracy. How can innovations in technology, artificial intelligence, and machine learning help uh, the third estate to close uh, the gap? Um, so in response to those two comments, questions, uh, back to you, panelists, everybody doesn't have to respond to everything, but if you have a comment you'd like to add, please. Tom. Thank you. Um, let me turn first to Steve's uh, comment with a, a bit of a question, I guess. Um, yeah, I agree with you, Steve. The development community in the last 10 years has been caught between two conflicting lines of pressure or development in a way. One is partly because of the decreasing public consensus on development, a feeling of pressure about having to show results in very tangible ways to keep people on board the idea that this money is worth spending, although it's also a result of the influence of some thinking about development, you know, the Gates Foundation moving into more quantitative methods in the early 2000s and others that influence other parts of the community. So on the one hand, you do have that pressure. But on the other hand, you've had a line of, of evolution, which I think has been significant, about trying to improve aid mechanisms to make them more locally specific, more flexible, more informed by real political analysis, and so forth. But I think that's real. And although it may be that the project you worked on, they didn't have time to do the political economy analysis, you know, DFID and a number of other aid agencies have done a lot of political economy analysis they didn't used to do in programs. And, and I have seen a number of programs that are grounded in an idea that, you know, we have to take the local context much more seriously, be more flexible, and so forth. But these two imperatives, the lines are to some extent in tension with each other. And this one, you know, the former often does crowd out the latter. But I'd say it's, it's an open struggle. What's unfortunate in the US context is I think, you know, in a way, you and probably could put together a wise group of 10 to 20 experienced practitioners like yourselves that would say, do a 30% cut in USAID and do it intelligently. You could come up with more effective assistance easily that would be more productive for people in the developing world. But we're not going to have that moment. This, this kind of process is not a reform moment. It's a, it's a slashing moment in which probably the negative pressures will actually increase. And what we 
been gaining in terms of a more thoughtful and productive approach will actually likely be lost. So unfortunately, I think uh, this is a moment in which there's some deep questioning, but behind it is not a serious intention to really think through carefully the, the positive lessons of the last 10 years and incorporate them into the assistance. A any other comments on either of those two? We've got plenty of others as well. Yeah, um, on log frames, I would say they do play a bigger part in my life than I wish they did. But at, at the same time, I think accountability is important, accountability to taxpayers, and I think a lot of it comes in from there. John, I just uh, want to say for the audience that doesn't spend their time doing this, what is a log frame? A, a, logical, a logical framework that will, that will look at outcomes, inputs, outputs, outcomes, so on and so forth. So attempting to, attempting to put into boxes the steps, the actions that you take, the resources you put into them, and the outcomes that you're going to achieve. Um, but I'm sure that Tom could describe it much, much more elegantly than me. Um, in terms of international democracy support, I have worked in, in many different countries and projects, and some of them, I think, have probably not had a great payback but many of them have, and the single most important thing to me is the opportunity that international democracy support provides for international sharing. So for uh, people from countries where it would be very unlikely for them to have the chance to study what other models are carried out uh, for democratic processes, democratic systems, to consider different models and to apply them in their own context. And I think that's something that's very, very difficult to do unless you have an international awareness of what's out there. Again, I don't think it's a matter of telling people what they need to do, but providing um, the opportunity to see different, different models, different ways in which uh, countries, democratic systems address challenges within their processes and systems. Um, in terms of the question from, uh, from Ljubljana, which I guess the philosopher Slavoj Žižek comes from there, and uh, I suppose that's, that's uh, one of his students is, is uh, questioning uh, democracy. Um, I would say technology does have both positive uh, possibilities and opportunities, and also clearly has, has dangers. Um, in terms of the positive, I think technology clearly provides the opportunity for greater openness. Um, it uh, provides the basis on which citizens can, in fact, see how governance is being carried out. And on that note, I want to say that uh, in Ukraine, May 19th and 20th, um, with the support of the Westminster Foundation for Democracy, which is represented here, um, uh, Ukraine is ho the Ukrainian Parliament is hosting the World Open Parliament Conference. At, and if you want to look at openpalconference.org, um, there's lots and lots of information there on how technology can improve democratic accountability. And the whole conference will be online. So there's a positive. That's great. And uh, as a uh, partial response uh, and plug, we're having an event in a few weeks on universal basic income. And the reason that I raise that is because part of the reason that this uh, question has become so popular in both rich and poor countries is the anticipation of the golden age of uh, machines doing all of our jobs for us. So if you're interested in that subject, uh, stay tuned. Um, 
why don't we come over? We have a question from the audience over here. Yes. Thank you. Uh, my name's Jill Lusk. I'm a journalist specializing in the Sudans. Um, I wanted to pick up on a word that um, Kebuitsa used a couple of times, which was engage. She talked about political parties engaging with the people in South Africa, I think, in that context. And uh, she talked about Western um, interests engaging with third world interests, global South interests. And um, what what struck well also I think we might say that uh, political parties need to engage with the population in in Western society too because populism is partly a result of a lack of information about democracy. But anyway, um, what what I wanted to pick up on was the politics of it. In my experience as a journalist, very few government officials, UN officials, or NGO workers that I've come across actually want to know or talk about the politics of the place where they're working in any context, I mean, even privately. They, they don't seem to consider that the substance of the politics matters very much, and surely that is what we're talking about here um, in terms of the engagement. Of, so outcomes, incomes, but I mean, yes, but no, no politics really, and the most sharpest, the sharpest example of this that I'm aware of is um, that the European Union, now led, perhaps surprisingly at the moment, by Britain in this context, um, is engaging strongly with the government of Sudan, on theoretically on a security issue to stop migration and to stop Islamism. But in fact, it's engaging with the government, which is encouraging both. So, you know, this is uh, their form of engagement now. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Uh, quick question, and then one from the, one from the field, and then back to the floor. Uh, thank you, uh, Sheila Page. I, I wanted to raise an issue which came up from actually the ex-Chief Justice of England and current Chief Justice of New Zealand yesterday in terms of risks to democracy within these countries and therefore the sort of democracy which might be promoted anyway. The first is, uh, they're both excessive legitimacy to the executive and, ex and lack of control by the legislature. The tremendous growth, of the estimate was 40,000 pages per year, in delegated legislation in the UK context, which effectively has no legislative control any longer on the executive, even of quite important issues of principle, not just details of administration, which has reduced the role of control of the executive. And closely related to that, the assumption now that the executive has some independent legitimacy, that the legislature should not challenge the uh, not just the will of the people, to use an expression, but the will of the executive. And that if this is the type of democracy which we might be promoting, uh, does it matter if we don't? Yeah. <laughs> um, let me ask one, uh, Kavoitzi, one, one very interesting and pointed question uh, here from online. Gareth Wall from the Commonwealth Local Government Forum wants to ask that uh, you should first fact check this for us. I believe that Burundi is the latest member to join international IDEA. Could you comment on what tools IDEA has to pressure the government of Burundi or other of your member states uh, to respect constitutional democracy? Uh, so uh, why don't we... Uh, uh, yeah, please. I could, I could, yes, I, I, could, I, could, I could start, can I? Please, go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah, Gareth, I should have invited you to come and, and, and watch this for my idea, then you wouldn't have asked that question. Um, <laughs> um, 
The, it's not Burundi. Burundi is not a member of uh, international idea. The, our latest uh, member that joined last year was Benin, not not uh, not not Burundi. But as you are probably aware, we as international idea, one of the the the, the programs that we have is on uh, constitution building, and our emphasis in that work is. Um, the process of who is included during constitution building. So constitutionalism is actually one of the the, 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 the areas where we are focusing and in, in our Africa program, actually, this is actually will be one of the very key work because as, as Michaela said earlier on, we are seeing leaders who, whenever their term comes to office, they are tampering with constitutions. And for us, this is a big concern. And a lot of the work that we will be doing in Africa going forward will be focusing on this very issue of uh, uh, constitutionalism and, and, and inclusive constitutions. Um, you might want to, you might be interested in knowing that we are also uh, recently coming up with an innovative uh, tool or methodology for assessing the implementation of constitutions, which is something that we would like to encourage um, citizens, people living in a country to be able to take up this tool and, and assess how, to what extent uh, their constitutions are being, are being implemented. Because often uh, there is a big gap between, you know, a, a constitution as a very good inclusive document that is there, but and, and also its implementation. And we think that this is an area that is often um, not looked on in terms of uh, really systematically monitoring the, 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 the implementation of the constitution. So this, this will be our contribution. We don't see it as a panacea, but we really think that if we can more and more encourage uh, uh, different actors within a country to be able to uh, look uh, more intently to the implementation of their constitution and propose reform agendas that might actually be a, a, a useful uh, way uh, to do this. Um, going back to the issue of uh, which one of the, 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 the participants there asked about in, uh, political parties engaging, uh, actually for, for, for she is right by noting that even in, 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 the, in the Western world, especially in Europe, um, the, the, the problem of uh, the level of engagement between political parties and citizens, and, and, and for me, this is exactly what I was talking about earlier, because even when you look at political party memberships uh, in Europe, they are so low, um, and that is a, in itself a, a problem that causes, that, that, that actually it's an example of where the disconnect is and where some of the political parties even here in Europe and including here in Sweden are beginning to actually look at this and saying, how can we re-engage uh, with the citizen? And some of the, 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 the reasons why that, that engage, this engagement has happened is that um, political parties have had now access, not just in Europe, they are having access to more to resources uh, outside of their membership. In the past, uh, they depended on their memberships for, for membership fees, but now they also have access to, to resources, some, some of it even public funding, uh, which I think as a result ended up also contributing to this disconnect between uh, people and their political parties. So for us, it's very important that um, that connection, the relationship is built uh, 
rebuilt between political parties, whether they are in Europe or elsewhere Thanks. Uh, with the citizens. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks, Kawazi. So uh, we're, we're, we're coming short on time, so I'm going to run down the, uh, the, the line here, starting with you, about two minutes each, uh, in, either in response to those questions or final things that you wanted to bring to them. I was just going to respond on the issue of engagement, which is that I think the aid industry also has a democratic deficit right now. Um, when I first was writing about the World Bank, the IMF, and, and uh, you know, foreign aid in, in Africa, um, you used to be able to call up a World Bank um, office uh, director and he would give you a briefing as a journalist. The IMF were having press conferences in Nairobi. Jim, uh, Kim Jacox gave a, a major press conference in, in Kenya when he passed through. <coughs> um, and, and similarly Claire Short and Andrew Mitchell were confident, very proud of what they were doing, believed in what they were doing and were very answerable to journalists. I believe, uh, I mean, try and get a, an interview with the World Bank um, a country director now and you'll spend a long time and I have spent a long time doing it I've also spent a long time trying to get Diffid to talk to me um, the, the doors are closed and in Britain in particular I would say that having 0.7% written into legislation means that people feel they're not accountable and they don't uh, you know Diffid doesn't feel it has to account for that when did we last see Priti Patel giving an interview about what she's doing at Diffid have we, has she ever done that when did we see Justin Greening doing that uh, these are major, major budgets. They're ring-fenced. They're written down in English legislation, and therefore nobody has to answer for them. So I think the democratic deficit goes to the heart of the aid industry as well. Jonathan. Mm. I wanted to respond to the question about uh, power, balance of power between parliaments and executives. I agree completely that, um, that strong parliaments <coughs> are critical to successful democracies. One of the areas in which there is robust uh, research evidence, it is that there is a close correlation between strong parliaments and stable and effective democracies. And I suppose I would say that's why I work in the area of parliamentary development. That's me. <laughs> Tom? Um, I agree that the international development community is at a turning point, that they're there are really long-term structural reasons why the Western consensus on development assistance and the development endeavor is in, is in fundamental question, both because of the feeling that, hey, lots of problems at home, why should we spend it abroad, as well as do we really know what we're doing and can we prove it? Those are the two things that are driving it. And I think we will see over the next five to ten years some kind of large set of institutional changes that result in a development community that looks quite different 10 years from now than what we do. It'll clearly have a greater focus on secu security for security's sake, and it'll probably have some other changes. But what's important to keep in mind as this happens is that the tendency of countries to work across borders to influence other countries, whether to influence their economic development, influence their social character, maybe their religious character, influence their political development, is on the increase in the world, whether it's the Indian government sending its electoral commission out to many countries, the South African government engaging in its region and regional institutions and other things, the Russian government exerting different kinds of influence, the Saudi government fighting wars in its neighborhood and so forth. And, you know, if the West wants to be part of the larger in a sense, direction of the 21st century, socially, economically, and politically, it's going to have to keep engaging across borders. 
I don't think we're going to keep calling it the development community and development work, but there is going to be a larger Western engagement because it's too important not to be part of that. And so I think we should, you know, see this moment as, as really transformative and it can go in bad or good ways, but this is not the world turning in on itself. And I don't envisage a world in the next several decades of a bunch of autarkic countries that don't touch each other, quite the opposite. It's much more and more an active marketplace of all different kinds and technology is fueling that. And the, the eruptions of sovereignty and xenophobia and nationalism we see is a symptom of that, but it's not gonna stop it. It's just, hey, wait a minute. I'm not sure I want this, but there's no stopping it because it's the direction of history, I would say. So the development community is at a turning point, but something much larger is happening that it needs to decide how to be an effective part of. Well, that sounds like a tall order. I'm going to welcome uh, Alina uh, to stand up and give us uh, a few minutes of reflections um, on what we've heard and, and uh, maybe even a hint of... Uh, what what we what we see is the agenda that 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 organizations like ours need to pursue to to, to deal with some of the questions that have been raised today. Um, thank you so much, Alex. And I may cheat a little bit because I think um, I wanted to use some of the things that have been said here um, and interpret them in my own way to give you some closing remarks, if that's okay. Um, really uh, taking the hat of the kind of work that we have been doing here at ODI on on these very important questions of, of democracy and democracy support. So. You know, obviously, democracy support has been at the core of the international development agenda since at least the end of the Cold War. Uh, but I think there's pretty much consensus about the fact that for whatever reason, uh, democracy support has not worked as well as had been hoped for. Um, and there are some lessons that keep emerging over and over and over again in a rather consistent manner. And a lot of the work that um, different people have done, including a lot of us here at ODI, is to emphasize that change actually does not happen through idealized models of, of, of uh, how societies should evolve. Um, and that actually um, the good governance agenda is not necessarily the answer to, to those challenges. And in particular, we have emphasized time and time again that democracy in its own right, uh, however normatively important it is, is not necessarily the answer or the only answer to many of the puzzles that confront societies, ranging from uh, the promotion of economic development to um, promoting more inclusive processes to promoting peace um, and reducing inequality. And there have been a lot of concerns that we have raised in our work as well about, for example, the fact that um, the international democracy support has tended to overemphasize form over substance, has not properly grappled with informal institutions um, uh, because it has focused too much on formal ones, um, and you, uh, that there has been this rhetorical, I think you said, uh, Steve, rhetorical commitment that doesn't necessarily bear out in practice. And we also heard from Michela that some of this agenda um, has already been co-opted uh, quite often by, by other security concerns. So many of us have been calling actively for the need to problematize democracy support, to think and work in more politically aware ways. And now here we are, and I think this is a really deeply ironic moment that really um, calls for some pause from all of us who have been so critical. Because now we're on the age of Trump, and we now have Secretary Tillerson, as Alex said earlier, saying very explicitly that it may just be that it is not 
um, in the US interest to promote democracy or human rights, because it really may not be politically smart to do so. Um, there are other competing interests that have to be taken into account, and this just may be too much of a bother. So in a way, it's, it's the mother of all unintended consequences, right? Um, we, have, we have this agenda that has been, in a way, uh, weirdly interpreted and co-opted by, by Trump's uh, brand of populism and this America first um, discourse that he has. And it really places an onus on, on all of us who do care about this, the, the future of democracy support to think more, more fully about how we ensure that we don't throw the baby out with the, the, the bathwater, and how we can continue to support normative goals and ambitions through perhaps more pragmatic and politically aware means. And I think this has been at the core, um, the, the ultimate challenge of democracy support throughout. Um, you know, this is a message that we have, that we have kept um, instilling in the people that we work with. But how do we do that, especially now that this agenda seems so fragile? So I really like the comments that were made about um, thinking about uh, democracy support in a much more collective way across North and South, developing and developed countries, um, through less paternalistic approaches and much more through dialogue and through the, the importance of mutual learning and mutual support. And I think ultimately, the challenge for all democracies, not just in the developing world, but in the developed world, is how we actually make them deliver because I agree with what Kebochi was saying that people want democracy, but they want democracy abstractly, and they really deeply care about how that democracy performs for them. That's the challenge that we have seen here in the UK with Brexit. That's the challenge that we have seen in the US with the rise of Trump. And that's the challenge that lies ahead for many developing countries. And hopefully, you can watch this space, because this is the area of work that we hope, hope to uh, continue to develop here at ODI. So thank, thank you. Thank you so much, Lena. Uh, so um, uh, I want to thank everybody. Please join me in thanking the fantastic panelists that we have. Uh, I, can't, I can't help but conclude at least with something slightly positive, which is that if, if there's anything that we draw from this, it's uh, probably the message of don't let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, we all know that there are serious challenges with democracy and human rights and the support over time for those things. Uh, but at the same time, it's never too late to do the right thing, and, and we, can, we can improve what we're doing. Um, as the means of a commercial break uh, to end uh, on what Alina said, we do a lot of work here at the Institute on doing development differently. So if you're out there or some future, uh, we've got some great professionals here in the audience. If you're out there in the future or your friends scratching your head or what do we do about this? How do we actually make this change uh, and deal with our own democracy deficits at home as well as abroad? Um, think about looking at uh, and joining in on some of the work that we've been doing on doing development differently uh, that can hopefully uh, help to make some of those changes. Thank you so much. Uh, as a, uh, We have uh, some coffee and biscuits outside, um, uh, and uh, a lot of thanks for your participation uh, in this panel today. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes.